listener production. So I identify most as gender non-conforming, meaning I don't conform to any kind of gender stereotype. Non-binary people also exist in the trans umbrella, which was something I had to really learn because I really proudly identify as a trans person now. So transgender, by definition, simply means that you don't identify as the sex that was assigned to you at birth. So underneath this beautiful spectrum, when people say, why do you need all those letters in the acronym? Like, this is why. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Denny Todorovic is a queer and human rights activist, an LGBTQIA educator, a podcast host and a celebrity fashion stylist. I was drawn to Denny's warmth, honesty and love of high heels. We bonded online and then I met them and their mum at a Camilla fashion event and told them we needed to have a proper D&M in real life. In part one of this chat, I wanted to talk to Denny about what it means to be non-binary and how we can have better conversations about it. And in part two, we talk about the recent furor Denny faced when they partnered with swimwear brand Sea Folly during World Pride. Denny. Darling. Oh, I'm so beside myself to be chatting with you. I've put on my best sparkles, my high heels, especially for you. Okay, I'm going to describe Jess's outfit to you. She's wearing like a sunray pleat, sequined, floral vibes by Romance Was Born. It's got green, it's got pink, it's got orange, it's very Mardi Gras. She's wearing these beautiful green crystally glasses. (laughs) Oh, and your nails. It's just, you're giving what you need to give right now. Oh, yay. Yeah. Well, speaking of giving what you need to give, tell me. You give so much. I have just finished reading your incredible book. And how did you get so wise? <laughs> it's really, first of all, it takes me a minute to process that kind of commentary because that means the world to me, especially coming from a journalist and a writer that I admire as much as I admire you. So thank you. Um, And I feel like Australians aren't very good at accepting compliments, are we? No. So I was saying to Nick earlier, your producer, that I feel like I'm going to own this moment because I feel like I'm in my wise era. But I will say that I've always felt like an old soul. I never wanted to sit at the kids' table. I always wanted to sit with the grown-ups. Games bored me. You know, interesting conversation, challenging conversation, debate. I was on the debate team. Okay, so last night I had this conversation with someone. Like I met this person and we spent six hours just talking and dancing. And I said to them, my favorite type of conversation, I'm not here to talk about the weather, is let's get real deep, real quick with no lube. Oh! That's my favorite type of conversation because those are the people that I connect with um, and that's the kind of conversation that interests me. So, like, I don't want to talk about the weather. Tell me about your childhood trauma. You know? That's my vibe. I am with you 100%. This is how we learn about one another. We learn about what we're made of. Yeah. But also 
not only do we help ourselves, but we can help other people. Yeah. And to me, that's the power of sharing our conversation and our experiences. It's funny you should say that because someone asked me last night, like, what do you do for a living? Which is always such a hard question to answer. So I just said, in short, I'm a storyteller, you know, and that uh, translates to various different mediums. But like at my core, that's who I am. And Brene Brown, who I love, she talks a lot about the power of storytelling and how storytellers speak the same language. And when you meet another storyteller, it's like this like meeting of the minds. So let's talk about your story. Sure. Let's talk about little Denny. You talk in your book about school and how Mm. tough school was for you. Take us back to that time. I grew up in Geelong, which I love. In the early 90s, when Geelong was a relatively white, somewhat affluent-ish, and my parents were, you know, migrants to Australia. Mum moved here when she was 16. Dad moved here when he was 21. So that was a really weird experience because I would go to school each morning and go to school with, like, exclusively white kids. There was, like, three wogs in my class, and I say that word with a lot of endearment. If you read my book, you'll know. I'm very proud of that term. So there was like, yeah, three of the wogs with our smelly salami sandwiches at school and everyone else was just white Aussies, as we call them, which is so funny to me now because the word Aussie means so many different things to me now. But I never identified as an Aussie until I lived in London and people started asking me questions. Anyway, so as a kid at school, there was a double whammy of bullying. First, there was the ethnic bullying. I still remember coming home and saying to my mum, what's a wog mum? And then there was the the sort of queer bling. And, you know, I came out of the womb looking like Jess's dress, basically, like gay as Christmas. And I was really comfortable in that, you know, dancing in the playground. Again, never interested in like kids games. I used to make my own games. So I was obsessed with this show called Gladiators. Do you remember Gladiators? It was so camp. They all had these fabulous outfits and like, they were basically drag queens. So I used to make us play gladiators at school and I'd always get in trouble because I was like the unruly queer child in the class. So school was really hard. It didn't really start to affect my mental health until high school, by which point I started keeping a diary. And I'll never forget writing in my diary one day, someone bullied me seven times. Like, so seven times in that day I'd been bullied. And like, that's a lot, but my defense mechanism, like most queer people, was to be like Teflon. I was never going to let them see me cry. I would just cry at the bus stop while I was waiting for my mum to pick me up because wogs don't take buses. (laughs) So, you know, like that was my school experience. But what you did, and I just, I want to give you a big hug hug about this, was that you though would perform in the talent quest mm. and you would, t- you would take it though to next level. So you were being bullied mm. terribly mm. but you continued to put yourself out mm. there in the most phenomenal way. Well, it's all I know and, you know, I've done a lot of, speaking of childhood trauma, I've done a lot of work with my therapist around why queer people and myself especially feel most comfortable on a stage. And that stage is a metaphor, right? So, you know, growing up when you feel othered, you only feel comfortable then when you're almost like a caricature of yourself. So you become like a bit of a alter ego. 
And when you're on a stage, it's like you're performing and there are people in front of you. So my whole life, I have felt like a bit of a circus performer, which is really funny because I come from a family of circus performers. My great-grandmother was a snake charmer in the circus. I've always been most comfortable on a stage, whether that's speaking, dancing, singing. I'm not very good. I wish I was. But you, know, you sang what I was sang it? Mariah, Mariah Carey. Carey. Okay. <laughs> so let me like, oh, I love that you just snorted. I'm a snorter. Um, so I sung at the Talent Quest and in year nine and I get up on stage and the girl goes, what are you singing today? And I said, Hero. And she goes, oh, by Enrique Iglesias. And I said, no, doll, how dare you insult me by Mariah? There's only one hero. And she goes, oh, your backing track's not working. And I said, that's okay. I'll do it a cappella. Do you know how hard it is to sing a cappella? Well, Mariah yeah. Carey can't even sing a cappella. <laughs> it was literally just like, <clears throat> have you seen Mean Girls? Yes, okay. have I seen Mean okay, Girls? Okay, so it was like that scene where Damien is singing Beautiful by Christina Aguilera and people are throwing sneakers at him. That was me. One after the other, people started standing up. Faggot, poofta, homo, laughing, laughing, laughing. I kept going. Kept going. <laughs> How did you How? do that though? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm a very spiritual person. I talk about that in my book a lot. And I feel like there's always been this like divine power that like protects me. And like I know that I'm actually not alone. So if I'm on that stage getting heckled, I'm not on that stage alone. There is like this divine energy that protects me. Yeah. So I try to carry that in my life. Like last night I was rejected to get into an Uber on Crown Street in Surrey Hills, which is like the gay capital of Sydney, because the Uber was homophobic. In that moment, I was like, okay, I could get really pissed off right now or I could just book another Uber. So, I, you know, I just booked another Uber. So... It's a constant state of being Teflon. Where does that come from, though? Mm. So I think my resilience comes from my ancestry. You know, I am uh, the great-grandson of a Holocaust survivor. You know, my parents are migrants. I've heard these incredible stories from elders in our family of, like, them living in Germany during the time of Nazi regime and, like, they used to watch Hitler do his speeches on the stage and stuff. My great-grandfather, in fact, the way he escaped a concentration camp was by pretending he was dead. I mean, how he did that is beyond me. And he was fortunate in that he wasn't one of the ones that were thrown in a gas chamber. They would just bag up the dead bodies and then, like, take out the trash. So he escaped via being bagged up and jumped out of the trash can. So he was in a trash can with actual dead people. And we've just recently discovered through a DNA ancestry test that our lineage stems in India, in the Punjab region, from a group of people called the Romani Gypsies, which is another term that my family use very affectionately. I know it's a slur for some people, but so like gypsies are no joke, man. Like we're tough. So I think that's where it comes from. And your parents, <laughs> you are incredibly close to them both. And I was lucky enough to meet your beautiful mum yeah. at an event recently. And I think a lot of people have fallen in love with your mum via social Dol, media. She's the influencer we didn't know we needed. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and watching all of her views and all of her followers. Oh, but she's incredible too. And you talk about a time when, when you wanted to be in the Christmas pageants uh, and you came home in tears. Yeah. So that's like one of my favourite stories of all time. So I was in grade prep, which is kindergarten, I believe, in New South Wales. 
And I was the youngest in my class. So like the littlest and the youngest and whatever. And we came to school one day and they said, we got a Christmas concert. The boys are coming as shepherds. The girls are coming as angels. And I said to my teacher, oh, I want to be an angel. Like shepherds are boring. She was like, well, you can't. You're a boy. So I went home and I cried and I cried and I cried. And I'll never forget because my mum was home, but so was my auntie because I talk in the book about how my house was always Grand Central Station. It was always full of people. So my mum looked at me and said, if you want to go to that concert as the angel, you are going to that effing concert as the best angel there's ever been. So literally, it's like a medley out of Cinderella. The sewing machine comes out, the fabric rolls come out, the three little mice, aka three aunties, start making me this dress. We go to this shop in the city, mum buys me these angel wings. I could still smell them, Jess. I can't explain it, but they're like these beautiful wings made out of gauze. And there was a scent to them. I could still smell that scent in my mind now. And I went to that concert, we didn't tell anyone. I went to the concert as the angel and they put me in the middle of the stage. So that was my mum's first display of allyship without even realising it because it wasn't about, like, is her son gay? It was like, my son wants to be the angel, so they're going to be the angel. It's that simple. There was no other option in her eyes. She's like a fierce, loyal, lion mother. She's the best. And there she was in the front row taking photos. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and crying. And I remember walking into that hall And she like held my hand and I felt safe because mum held my hand and that was all that mattered. Ugh, you're going to make me cry. But probably, Ben, because of that sense of safety, Mm. that then was what enabled you to be putting yourself on the stage Mm. all the time and to endure that most horrific bullying. So true. Yeah, so true because... You know, mum and dad could have said, don't perform, don't do dance, don't do this, whatever. So I remember I got told off once by mum, quite horribly actually, um, you know, wogs love a little slap across the bum. I know that's not as kosher in like white families, but that's just normal. That's how we raise children. And so I'll never forget getting in trouble for dancing to Janet Jackson in the playground because apparently it was too provocative. The principal called my mother during like her lunch break and said, your son is dancing in the playground, you know, to Janet Jackson provocatively. So mum picked me up from school. I'll never forget it. Like dragged me by my shirt outside of my playground. Can you imagine how humiliating that was? Got home. She smacked me across the bum many times and was like, you cannot dance like that anymore, Denny. Like, why are you so sexual? That's, that's probably not the language she used. But that was the first time I really felt like persecuted for my sexuality. And what I mean by that is like my sexual energy. But other than that time, she's only ever supported. I remember when I was little, all my cousins did soccer and I had no desire to do soccer. I wanted to do ballet. So my mom took me to the local ballet school and they turned me down because I was a boy. So she called my auntie and she was like, that school won't let Denny do ballet. And then my auntie said to her, well, shouldn't Denny be doing soccer? And mom was like, no. So like, that's mum. And dad. Dad is the the real ally. He was the one who accepted my sexuality first. He accepted my non-binary identity first. He's so empathetic. We always joke that like he's a little bit gay because he's just like so feminine and has such a beautiful, almost like non-binary energy himself. Actually, both my parents do. 
So I'm just like the luckiest kid in the world to have them because it could have gone the other way. And it often does in ethnic families. And that's why I think what you do is so powerful, the way you share your experience and your family's experience Mm. in the sense of, well, this is how things can happen. Mm. It can be this Mm. difficult but still beautiful story. Yeah, and it's honestly something that I... I sometimes grapple with it because I'm very aware of the privilege that I have with mum and dad and I never want to like make other people think like, well, this is how it's going to be if you come out, especially if you're ethnic because like I know people who are in their like 30s and 40s and who are gay and married and like Croatian, but their parents still don't know that they're gay. So I know that that's the reality for some people and I just got really lucky you know, I had a friend at school, an Italian friend. His dad kicked him out when he came out at 17. Imagine kicking out your child at 17. You know, he had to go from like foster care to foster care after that. So I know the reality, but to your point, I'm an optimist at heart and I like to show that there are layers of like black and layers of white, but there's also like a rainbow layer in the middle And like the goal in life is to get to that rainbow layer. And what I always say is it might not be your biological family who take you to that rainbow layer. In fact, it's probably not going to be. It's probably going to be your chosen family, which is, I think, the biggest blessing of being a queer person or any minority group. Because in every minority group, whether that's people of colour, whether it's like feminism, the disabled community, anything, they all find their chosen family. And it's the best thing ever. So how would you describe your chosen family? Oh, my gosh. You are going to make me cry. My chosen family have taught me that blood is not thicker than water. Trauma is thicker than anything. And shared trauma is the rainbow. They have taught me that gatherings of a family kind exist in many different ways. Like last night I went to church, you know, as I said, I'm very spiritual and the word church by definition is just where people congregate to talk about God. Dancing naked at Ark on a Sunday night is church. Watching RuPaul's Drag Race with your friends is church. Crying with your friends because, you know, you were sexually abused as a child, that's church. And Sorry, listeners, this might be the first time you hear a story like this on Jess's podcast, but I had like a gay elder in my community teach me how to douche, which is not like a pretty process. Literally got in the shower with me and like was like my cheerleader. I will forever be grateful that someone did that for me. Could you imagine two straight men doing that? No. Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. I would liken it to maybe like a woman giving another woman a tampon in a, you know, toilet. That's chosen family. And like, that's the fucking best, man. You know, it doesn't get better than that. And it's also about feeling understood. Mm. Not even just understood. It's like you speak the same language. It's really that simple. It's like we have the same shared experiences. You know, there's always that cliche question, when did you come out and you share that story and everyone has a different story. You know, who was your first time and, you know, what was that like? And, you know, there are so many moments of trauma that gay men 
or queer people experience. Something I've been talking a lot with a lot of my straight friends recently is that almost every queer person I know has been sexually abused at some point as a child by a family member, myself not included. I'm very fortunate in that way. But like, so those moments are like same language moments. You don't have to feel shame or guilt. Rather, you're like enveloped with an understanding. And being able to let go of shame and guilt Mm -hmm. is so empowering. You write about when you wore some beautiful silk pyjamas that you were sent Mm -hmm. during lockdown. You've done your research, honey. Yes. And how that made you feel. Mm. So we were in lockdown and for some context, I used to work as a sleepwear buyer for Maya. It was my first job in the menswear department. And so like sleepwear was like a daily part of my life. And it was also boring, except for Peter Alexander, which was a brand that we didn't stock, sadly. So growing up, I used to watch Days of Our Lives with my mother every night. And the women always wore like these beautiful, silky, sumptuous things. And I was always like, why are the boys in like boring cotton stripe? Like how boring? Looks like a business shirt. So in lockdown, this brand, and I wish I could remember their name. It was just like a little lady startup sent me a camisole set, which they like embroidered my name into it. It was midnight blue with a lace trim. And it was like the first moment of like gender euphoria that I ever felt. But I can tell you right now, I walked out of my bedroom and my mom was like, what's going on? Because my mom grew up in a time where something like that would be considered cross-dressing. So she was like, she really didn't feel comfortable with it. You know, and she was like, are you going to post that on your socials? And I was like, absolutely. So again, every moment of freedom and like euphoria in my life has always been met with persecution, duality. It's like the one word that describes my life. Mm. Something though that, that I thought about reading that was that you though had the confidence to walk out of your room in front of your mum. Mm. I mean, Jess, that is the question that follows my life. How are you so confident? And I wish I had an answer. Because for me, it's just a state of being and I've always been like that ever since I was little. And I wish I had some like three steps to confidence. I'd probably be a billionaire if I did. Oh, you would. We could bottle it and sell it. But it's just how I've always been. Someone said to me last night, I've never met anyone more comfortable in their own skin. And I was like, wow, that's the most beautiful thing anyone has ever said to me. But to some degree, I've always felt that way. But it's taken time, though, to get comfortable in your skin, hasn't it? Absolutely. It's taken 35 years and it will take another 35 and hopefully, God willing, another 35 after that. It's a constant every day. Constant every day. During lockdown, you know, it was a difficult time for many people. Mm. But I was fascinated to hear that for you it was like a light had been switched on during that time. Why was that? Yeah, so again, I want to approach this with a huge level of self-awareness because I know that lockdown was horrible for most people. For me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me and I kind of miss it, if I'm honest. It provided all the things I needed. It was like, again, just a meeting of like right place, right time, because it gave me time 
to go inward, to do research, to explore my identity further, both as a gender non-conforming person, but also as a professional, because I had a huge light bulb moment in terms of work. I was also lucky, you know, like I was getting the Centrelink payment from Daddy Dan, thank you. So I had a bit of like financial ease. I was living at home. So like, you know, no rent to pay. And I know like privilege on privilege. So I was getting paid to stay at home, research my identity, create content. And then that became my job. Like in what world does that exist? So how can I not be grateful for that time? And that was the time too that you, would I say, realised you were non-binary? Yes, it was when the light switch went on because you have to remember, like, I never had language to articulate my identity. However, I think it's really important to note that non-binary identities have existed for as long as Indigenous people have existed. And in fact, non-binary identities are celebrated in Indigenous communities. The gender spectrum and rather the gender binary is a very Western construct because it aids capitalism and the patriarchy. Sorry to sound like a woke snowflake, but like that's just the easiest way to explain it. So growing up, especially as someone who, English is my third language. So I didn't have the language to articulate what I was. And then Sam Smith came out as non-binary like four years ago. And I read an interview of theirs and bawled my little eyes out because I was like, holy shit, like that's me. But much like all my truths, I parked it to the back of my mind, swept it under a cute little rug. And then it just kept knocking on my door, kept knocking on my door. And then two months before lockdown, I met a non-binary person in the flesh for the first time. And I have this theory that like you can ignore something as long as you like until it's staring you in the fucking face. Can't ignore it then. And then we went into lockdown. And then I did all the research There's no like statistic research to back this, but there is lots of like think pieces about the fact that more people came out as gender non-conforming in lockdown than ever globally because we all felt safe in our homes, you know, and not judged by the outside world. So again, like blessings on blessings, like it was just the most perfect environment to come out. And I don't think I would have come out as quickly or perhaps as like robustly had we not been in lockdown. When you say there were times when it kept sort of knocking, you know, hello, hello, in what way did it do that? So I worked at Cosmopolitan for five years and I got an email from someone and they had they, them in their signature. And I went into my editor, Bronwyn McCann's office, and I said, Bron, what does this mean? She was like, I honestly don't know. I was like, okay. And I sort of Googled it and I was like, hmm, pronouns, what's that? So that was one example. Then I used to watch a TV show called Younger. And the main character on that is this beautiful actor. Their name's Nico Tortorella. Nico, I feel like, was like the first famous non-binary person. And they have a non-binary partner. And they're like in this non-monogamous polyamorous relationship. And they're like as woke as they get. So Nico's podcast really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Then it was Courtney Act, which... I've been, you know, fortunate enough to work with Shane and I've told Shane that they changed my life. They did an Australian story episode that aired during lockdown and I watched it with my dad. And this is what I mean about my dad. After that episode, my dad turned to me and said, Denny, that's you. Like, that's what you are. And I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. I've been trying to tell you this for two months, but I'm like too scared. 
so they're those little moments. And Oprah is my oracle in life. And she always says, listen to the whispers before there's a brick wall in front of you. If you can listen to the whispers, you'll avoid a lot of that brick wall energy. So they were my whispers. And that is so true. And we often will try and push those whispers away, Mm -hmm. cover them up with whatever it might be. Substance abuse, buying too much stuff, whatever, to try and, no, 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 suppress that, suppress that, until you can't. Yeah. I mean, that is, like, you've just hit the nail on the head. Before we got on mic, we were talking about substances and queer people because I was talking about this on my socials over the weekend. And what people don't often realise or sort of stop to realise is that, you know, why statistically do minority groups struggle with substance abuse more so than like privileged white folk who, by the way, also take substances, but they do them in their wealthy mansions in Brighton. It's because the disparity between privilege means that you have more trauma typically. And so you are trying to mask. So whether you're masking with substances, whether you're masking... So my two vices are shopping and food. So if I'm not eating my feelings, I'm shopping my feelings. So that's something I've had to be really aware of lately. Because like, it's like, oh, which is the, which is the lesser of those two evils for my bank account and my waistline and my mental health. Um, so we're always masking, you know, for some people, it could be like sports, like gym junkies, you know, or I don't know, maybe you collect stamps vigorously and they're your like vice. So we all have them. They exist in so many different ways and some are better for us than others, you could argue, but we all have them. But like the best thing to do is go and sit in the forest alone in the dark and sit with your demons and turn the demons into like gorgeous butterflies because you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to. People may be listening and thinking, oh, Danny's got it all together. Why don't I? (laughs) Yeah, but also it hasn't come easily in the sense of you have done a lot of work with your therapist, with a number of therapists mm-hmm. over the years, that you have to do the hard yards, mm-hmm. don't you, mm-hmm. to be able to be with those butterflies and to see the light and the joy. Yeah, and it's like an ever-evolving process. Like those demons don't turn into butterflies overnight. And then, by the way, the devil is like a little shithead, so he'll just keep coming back. He'll keep whispering in your ear when you least expect it. You'll be tapping away at your keyboard on Tuesday And like Janet's annoying you with her email and then suddenly that little devil's in your ear going, oh, you know, you haven't had sex with that really toxic person in a long time. You should go do that. I hate that voice. So it's a constant state of unraveling that voice. I always say, you know, if I could give anyone any life advice, it's like book your therapist yesterday. Like go find a therapist. Let's destigmatize therapy. It's the best thing ever. Therapy is also a privilege though. So look for ways that maybe you can do that. You know, there's like a mental health plan. Um, I love Thorn Harbour Health in Melbourne. Get this, yeah. They have a gold coin donation policy for therapy for queer people. Gold coin donation for 10 sessions. It's 20 bucks. So therapy, therapy, therapy. And it wasn't until my therapist at Thorn Harbour Health that all the dots started to connect because he was my third therapist and I'm onto my fourth. And now I sort of see like a more holistic therapist, healer, 
oracle guide. She's in my book, Elise. You know, and I'm sure Elise won't be my last therapist. I've actually just inquired to find a new one because I follow this amazing woman. Her name's the Millennial Therapist on Instagram. Shout out, Sarah. And I'm like, I think I need a therapist that's like my age. And she's also the same ethnicity as me, which could be really interesting to explore. So it's like a hairdresser. Get a good one, but also like haul yourself around a little bit because, you know, it's good to like dip the toe. And when you find a good therapist, it's like they're worth their weight in gold. And you can do the hard work and live a much better, fuller life. What I'd love to talk about, especially for some people who are listening and not familiar with different terms and things, with non-binary, explain what that means for the uninitiated. Easy. I love this question. Okay, so binary is a term that means anything that constructs of two things, like any system that constructs of two things. So if you look at like uh, the AFL, it's quite a binary system, right? There's two teams that verse each other. There's not three teams that verse each other. So like that's a binary system. So the gender construct for Western civilization has been binary, male, female. So to identify as non-binary in the most simple form means that you identify beyond, between, and outside that binary system. Now, non-binary itself is an umbrella term. And underneath that umbrella term sit various identities. So I identify most as gender non-conforming, meaning I don't conform to any kind of gender stereotype. Uh, Sam Smith and Courtney Act both identify as gender fluid. So they will kind of like fluctuate between male and female and other. With Courtney, it's very easy because it's like Shane Courtney and then there's like a hybrid Sam Smith has recently been a bit more vocal about the fact that like growing up, he was called Samuela and that's kind of, you know, their alter ego. And then the new album Gloria is all about that. And then there are lots of other ones, gender queer. I mean, the list is long, right? Now, to get even more deep, non-binary people also exist in the trans umbrella which was something I had to really learn because I really proudly identify as a trans person now. So transgender by definition simply means that you don't identify as the sex that was assigned to you at birth. However, due to media and just like the zeitgeist, we only know transgender as like from Bruce to Caitlyn Jenner. That's just what we know. When actually I'm a trans person, Sam is a trans person, Courtney is a trans person. So underneath, you know, this beautiful spectrum when people say, why do you need all those letters in the acronym? Like, this is why. Does that make sense? It does. Right? It does. It's a conversation Mm. that we need to keep having. And to understand. Yeah. And by the way, there is no such thing as a silly question as long as it's asked with respect and empathy. Ask all the questions. And not just like the basic ones, which like the ones I always get are like, what toilet do you use? Like, how do you walk in those heels? Like, ask questions. You walk incredibly well in those heels. I feel (laughs) I put you to shame today. I'm wearing sneakers. But like, come on, like, give me a good question. If you're going to ask me one, like, give me a good one. But also like, they can be as simple as you like. Just not condescending, ideally. Because that's how I learned. And like, by the way... I still stuff up all the time. I almost just called Sam a he earlier and my brain quickly changed as it came out of my mouth. I do it all the time. We just move on. And as you say, if it's with love and respect, Mm. Mm -hmm. compassion and empathy, Mm -hmm. 
and a sense of I want to get it right or I want to learn, that's what it's about. Well, my ethos in life is that like everything is about intention, Jess. Everything is about intention. If your heart is in the right place and you have good intentions, how could I be angry with you? If you're going to be an arsehole and deny me an Uber at 3 a.m., where's your intention in that? Anyway. Oh, if I can oh, find dull. that person. But do you know what bothers me so much about this as well? Is like, these are the people who are like, you know, God hates you. I'm like, don't, 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 don't. I was a Jehovah's Witness for 10 years, doll. Okay? God teaches to love thy neighbor. So I love how selective people are with that rule. Oh, of course. Oh, they cherry so pick. It's, it's ridiculous. Mm. I want to talk about fashion. I love oh, fashion. I was hoping we would come and to I this. And I know that for you, fashion is such an enormous part of your life. <sighs> From when you were tiny, you had a sewing room that was mm. sort of your haven and you'd make your own magazines. Yes. Which I just adore <laughs> that idea. The, the level of research. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I love you but, so much. But I love that there you are making, creating your own magazines. What is it about fashion for you that is so important? It's not just about a great outfit, is it? No. It is my love language. And I think if anyone would understand it, it's you. Look at you. It is my love language. And, you know, it is that quote in The Devil Wears Prada. It's so much more than just a sweater you pulled out of a bin from, like, casual corner. It is an industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry if we look at it, like, economically. But if we look at it spiritually... It is the way we communicate without communicating. You know, people expect me to be in a frock all the time. And I've actually had journalists tell me to my face, oh, I thought you'd be a bit more dressed up today. This is what I mean with the condescending comments. So like this morning I got up and I was like, okay, what am I going to wear? Like I still want to look cute. I'm chatting to Jess for the first time. So like my Fendi bag will do that. And I put makeup on, which I don't normally wear makeup during the day. But I did that for you. Um, and I'm wearing this cool vintage T-shirt that I got in New York that like honors the Twin Towers. Then like my mum's shorts and like some little sneakers I got from an op shop yesterday. Like this is my version of just like chic running around. I've got some errands to do later. Like I don't really need to communicate all that much. But actually my T-shirt communicates a lot. You know, the pearl necklace that I have around my neck with the rainbow communicates a lot. You know, the Fendi bag, you could say, okay, they're into fashion. Like, so this is what I mean. It's dialogue. And here's my theory. From the second you're born till the second you die, spare of being naked, you're wrapped in cloth. So therefore, cloth is the conduit to storytelling. End of story. Oh, I've just got chills. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so but right? true. It is so true. Yeah. I know for me, I use clothes fashion to lift my mood, to dress for a Hello, role. your lockdown outfits made my lockdown, oh, by the way. Oh, thank you. Get a round you. of applause for Jess. Yeah. yeah, during lockdown, every night I thought I have to get a new outfit out of my cupboard. Mm. My youngest daughter, she's like, Mom, how much longer have I got to take your photo? I'm like, well, however long this lockdown goes for. But it brought me joy. Of course. And, but what I loved too was that it also brought other people joy. Of course. And to me, that is the power of the cloth, of wrapping yourself in mm -hmm. whatever it is to help you deal with whatever the day throws at you. And for you, like I love reading about how fashion and clothes, like when you first wore heels, oh, how, how that, that felt. Night. I bumped into a very old friend of mine who is part of my extended chosen family, but I haven't seen him in a long time. 
And I said, Phil, do you remember that night with the heels and in your... And he's like, no. I was like, we were at your house. It was a Friday night. We were watching Drag Race. I just started dating my boyfriend at the time. I was sober as a nun, walked in, intimidated AF, 30 gay men in a room. And I'm like, I've never done this before. I'm from Geelong. (laughs) Spare a thought. So they were like, Denny, come into the closet. And they pull out this big like costume box, which I now know every queer person, but especially the gays, own a costume box. I have a great costume box. Oh, honey, you're queer in spirit. (laughs) Yay. Yeah. So, because queer is a feeling, by the way, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't matter how you identify. So anyway, we're in the closet and I'm looking in this thing and I see these like, I mean, the only way I can describe them is like stripper heels, right? Tall as tall can be, black, patent, beautiful provocative. You know, I would have got in trouble because of my Janet Jackson vibes, very that energy. And I'm just looking at them. And my darling boyfriend, who passed away a couple of months ago, looked at me and said, Denny, put them on, babe. He could just see. And I said, really? And he's like, yes. And I put them on and I felt like I was born again. And as soon as I said that to Phil last night, he goes, I remember now. And it's like, how can you forget a moment like that? You know, how can you forget a moment like that? I imagine it's like how LeBron James felt the first time he put a basketball jersey on. It's like, I'm home, honey. You know, Dorothy in her slippers, Cinderella in her glass slipper. We have these little touch points all throughout history. And that's why I get really annoyed when people say fashion is this like silly little superfluous thing. Really? What were you wearing when you lost your virginity? I bet you any money, everyone will remember. I remember exactly what I was wearing. Like what were you wearing on the graduation or your wedding day or divorce party? Like you'll remember it. So then come back and tell me that fashion is stupid. Yeah, of course (laughs) we do. And then also though for you that moment when you decided just to wear heels Mm. each day or, you know, for the first time when you're in Geelong going to get a coffee. Big moment. Big moment, big moment. I explained this to a girlfriend the other day. I said to her, my goal was to be able to wear heels during the day to get a coffee because I lived in this, like, space where I could wear heels only at night, only at gay bars, only for Halloween. It was a costume. And my whole thing is like, trans is not a costume. This is who I am. Therefore, I should be able to wear them to Coles if I want to, darling. So that took some time, but I'll never forget it. They were a pair of snake skin, like fake snake skin, Tony Bianco mules, very appropriate. I wore them with jeans and a sweater. And that's what I wore to brunch. And like, It was so euphoric. But I'm sure everyone else around me was just like, what's the big deal? Like you're wearing jeans and heels. Or maybe they were like, who's this person in the cafe? You know, but to me, that was a moment I'll never forget. You are the most (laughs) amazing person and I so adore talking with you. You're very good at affirmations. I would love to finish Mm. with an affirmation. Sure. Is there an affirmation that you could sort of share that people could listen to and think, yes, I'm going to use this? Yeah. It's my go-to and it's a go-to for a reason. So 
listeners, if you've never done this before, I would love you to shut your eyes because I really want you to like feel it like in your soul. And then you're going to repeat after me. I am beautiful. I am strong. I am worthy. I am loved. I am love. And that's it. Denny, (laughs) you are love. Thank you you so much. Thank you so much. Honestly, I can't even express to you, like, I've been looking forward to this. I went to bed early last night because of you. Oh, I swear to God. I went to bed at 1.30 with a kebab by myself. (laughs) No sex last night, Dolly. So I could be here and be present in this moment. And it has been, like, one of the highlights of my week. Oh, well, it's the highlight of mine. Woo! Love that. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. I really mean that. Oh, wow. Can we hug now? Yes, please. Yes, please. I am feeling better after that affirmation. How good is that? I need to do more of that in my life. I hope you're feeling better too. I've got to tell you, I absolutely adored Denny's book. It's called Love This For You. I've highlighted a lot of sections that I want to go back to and do some of that work on myself. I really recommend it for you. Something that doesn't make me feel good, though, is the level of trolling and hate that Denny has had directed their way recently. Some of you may be familiar with what's happened when Denny was the brand partner of the swimsuit brand Sea Folly during World Pride recently. Now, in part two of our chat, we talk about this, and I tell you, Denny is something else. I just love them so much. So don't miss part two of the chat where we talk about how Denny manages it when the storm gets directed their way. Death threats. It's messages to my mum saying you should be ashamed of your son like she got this morning. I got actually genuinely scared for the first time. I woke up to a DM. You are not a woman, you have a mental health illness and then proceeded to call me on Instagram because now there's a call function nine times in a row. And I'm like, is this man outside of my window? Does this man know where I live? Suddenly I feel unsafe. I live alone. My heart's like palpitating. For more big conversations like this one with Denny, I'd love for you to subscribe and follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you are never, ever going to miss an episode and share it with your friends. Tell everyone this is the podcast to be listening to. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.